Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Let's pray this morning over the Word of God, and we're going to ask Him to just teach us today. Father, we just thank You for the lessons that You give to us, the lessons that You have brought to, to my heart that have changed me and have transformed me, and, and, I, and I just thank You for Your grace. And I thank You for Your grace, the grace that You impart to all of us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, pull it out. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have blue Bibles that are just kind of around in the sanctuary. They're under the the seats uh, in front of you. You can pull one of those out. Let's let's say this. If you don't have a Bible, take one with you. You can take one of those blue Bibles with you because we want you to have the Word of God in your hand. Uh, And I want you to do this. I want you to go on that treasure hunt again. Some of you are already ahead of the game. Find Philemon, the book of Philemon. And uh, again, if you haven't looked for the book of Philemon, you cannot cheat. Do not go to the table of contents. We want this to be a solo flight. So find Philemon, if you would. And and the reason I want you to do that is because we're in a two-part series titled The Advantage. And we're studying the book of Philemon. And Philemon is the third shortest book in the Bible. It consists of 25 verses. It's the only recorded letter that we have from the Apostle Paul that was written to an individual and not a group of people, not a church. And I want you to remember that Philemon was the co-worker, a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. It was on one of Paul's missionary journeys that he stopped in the Lycus Valley in a place called Colossia, and they planted a church there. And now this church, as Paul writes this letter, is meeting in Philemon's home. What we know about Philemon is he was more than likely an aristocrat. He, he, had, uh, he was a man of means. And so he opened his home for the gospel. He opened his home for making disciples and spreading the gospel. And so Paul is writing this letter back to Philemon. Paul is in prison. And while he's in prison, he meets a runaway slave named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus, being a runaway slave, is thought to be by the Roman government at that time and the Roman institution as subhuman. He, he wasn't really a, considered a man or a woman. He was just a subhuman. And that's the way that slaves were looked upon. And even worse, the fact that he was a runaway slave meant that if he was caught in his, uh, in his running, that uh, there were a few things that could possibly happen to him. Uh, one is he could be beaten severely, he could be executed on the spot, or he, he could be repossessed and sold for a higher price. It doesn't sound like much of a life, does it? But there is this divine encounter that he has with the Apostle Paul in prison. And I'm guessing, and when we look at it, it's implied that he, he Onismus is there for, for a particular reason, breaking the law. Paul runs into him, leads him to faith in Christ, and then begins to disciple this young man to the point that he just he literally just falls in love with this young man and his faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul knows something. There's, there's, a greater, there's something great, greater that's compelling him. And it isn't his own, his own desire to keep Onesimus. It isn't his own desire to continue to grow that friendship. It is the fact that reconciliation needs to take place. And this is Paul's high calling. This should be our higher calling. Because the Bible says that we've been reconciled back to the Father through Jesus Christ. And that's really the essence of the gospel. And so Paul takes his advantage, the advantages that he had, not to keep to himself, 
but what he does is he shares them with others. And last week, we talked about the advantages that God has given all of us, that all of us in this room have some sort of an advantage, that it could be a relational advantage, it could be a spiritual advantage, an experiential advantage, a positional advantage, an educational advantage. And that Paul used his advantage in so many different ways to help Philemon be restored to Philemon or Philemon. And so we read in Philemon how this worked out. And what I want you to do is I really, I'm asking this, I've been praying this, that you would listen to this letter with spiritual ears. That you would listen to this letter um, as though it is written like a love letter, because it really is one of those kinds of letters, very personal. Um, there's something here that can capture your spirit. And when you hear about someone taking their leadership, their advantage, and helping someone who was seen as subhuman and leads them to faith in Christ and brings them to be a brother in Christ, it's an incredible, incredible picture of how the gospel looks in action. And it really gives us an indication, a model of how our relationships would work here uh, and how they work in families and how they would work in relation in community, reaching people in our community here and really around the world. So I want you to listen beginning at verse 1. It says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, Also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my, my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor that you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. 
I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends his greetings. And so to Mark, Aratakis, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. Do you hear the underpinnings there? Do you understand the foundation of where he's coming from? What he's doing is he has this deep compassion, this deep love for somebody who was unlovable, and that he extends himself. He uses his advantage to help this individual, Onismus, who is disadvantaged. And if you were to ask me, what is the, the very heart of Philemon? What is the heart of these 25 verses? I would have to tell you it's verses 8 through 12. And I want you to hear what it says again. It says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and I could order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who, came, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, uh, back to you. You see, our advantage should always be based in a genuine love for others, and that if you're serving others, if you're helping others, you always need to ask your motivation. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing this to uh, uh, feel satisfied and accomplished in my own life? Am I, am I doing this so that others would respect me or feel uh, that I'm important because I'm giving my advantage away? Do I do this to feel good about myself? You see, when we are helping others and when we're extending our advantage, we have to understand that in order for it to be effective, in order for it to be eternal, in order for it to be kingdom work, it always needs to be founded in love. That, that, that my work, that my giving advantage, my advantage to others is always to be eternally effective It's based and founded in the love of God. And that Paul shows us how that works. And when you look at the characteristics and qualities of the Apostle Paul, um, uh, and you see those in the book of Philemon, you recognize a few things about Paul. And I want to point a few of those things out because I think this is really, to me, this is love in action. This is the way that it works. First of all, Paul was a great encourager. Um, and, And what we need to know about encouragement. I'm going to tell you encouragement um, <laughs> encouragement needs to be valued more than I think it maybe really is because encouragement is a huge gift. Encouragement is an invaluable gift. It helps people see what they can accomplish and it imparts a confidence in them to move ahead. And and I don't know when you can remember or if you have something in your recent past or maybe maybe you have to go a long way back but If you can recall a time when someone came along and encouraged you and what it meant to you and how you felt about that encouragement. It was like you you, you wanted to always feel that way. 
And that hopefully if it works right, if encouragement really works right in your life, what you would say to yourself is, wow, if I can help others experience what I just experienced through encouragement, I want to keep doing it. Because encouragement should be contagious. Encouragement should be something that we're constantly passing along. The proverb says that if it's in your power to encourage somebody, then do it. Encourage them. But I know there are barriers to that. Pride is a barrier to that. Our lack of self-confidence or self-esteem or insecurities, those can be barriers for us encouraging other people. But, but Paul, we see in, in what he does and how he lives, that he is a great encourager. So think about the times that you've experienced encouragement and know what you sensed, know what you felt, that your spirit was just lifted up. And then especially when you think about the times that we need encouragement the most. And maybe you can think about times in your life where you've needed encouragement the most. I have, I have two, two seasons or two kinds of places in life where, where I know encouragement has, has deeply impacted me, affected me. And maybe it's the same with you. One of those times, one of those seasons is always during a season or time of failure. And it isn't interesting that when we experience failure, and, and, and most of us will, all of us will, uh, that we find out kind of who are the people around us. Because people, and especially in our culture, just they don't want to hang out with failure. And a lot of times what will happen is there will be an, an exiting that can take place. But those that, that remain to encourage you, um, the encouragement that comes when you have... Uh, experienced a, a failure in your life is huge. It's, in, it's incredible. It's invaluable. And how God sends those special relationships, those special people to bring encouragement to your life. Someone once said this, a word of encouragement during a failure is worth more than an hour of praise after success. And I would say the economy of what was just said is exactly right. It's very truthful. That if you've experienced failure in your life and someone has come along and encouraged you, it is like taking a drink of living water, isn't it? It's like having your spirit healed and mended. And that's the power of encouragement. And so encouragement is certainly good and and, and meaningful and deep during times of failure. But it's also during times of hardship that... That encouragement is, is necessary in our life, that we need to be encouraging one another. This is a, a theme in the Apostle Paul's writings. Often he says, listen, when those are going through hardship or trial or stress in their life, come in encouragement. May the encouragement of God's people, His fellowship, His Holy Spirit come alongside of you. And we need that. And so that means we need each other. And so certainly we encourage during times of hardship with... Um, with our words, but oftentimes we forget maybe the most important way we can encourage people, and that's with your presence. Did you know that just showing up during a time of hardship in a friend's life or a family member's life, that your presence means all the world? That you're just there. That you're just there. Several years ago, we had a family in our church, a young family, uh, five children uh, lost their father to cancer. Um, and I, I was driving over there and I was thinking to myself, what am I going to say? This is tragic. This is horrible. I don't, I, I don't even, 
I don't even know what to say. I'm, lo- I'm a loss for words. And the Lord just calmed me. And he said, just be with them. Just be present. And so um, I, 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 I went into the house and asked where the kids were. And they were all kind of huddled up in a back bedroom, all of them together. Walked in. They, they weren't really saying much. And just sat down in the middle of the group. I just kind of looked, looked at me and smiled and just continued to stare. The first question I remember asking after about 10 minutes of silence went by was, what are you going to miss most about your father? And that opened the door. I mean, the floodgates for joy and tears and all kinds of things. But the thing I think that was valued the most was just being there. There's value in presence. And that what you have to know and understand is your presence can make all the difference in people's lives. Especially when they're going through hardship, a difficult time. So Paul is a great encourager, but he's also something else. Paul gave perspective. Paul was one of those guys that could always give a big picture. No matter what you faced, no, no matter how difficult the circumstance was, he was always able to give perspective, the big picture. He constantly reminds others of God's greatness by showing us the work of Jesus Christ, by always pointing us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By always telling us here, what you need to do is compare the hardship you're going through now to the reward that you will receive with Jesus in heaven constantly. These light and momentary afflictions are nothing to be compared to the glory that you will have with Jesus Christ in eternity, constantly giving us the big picture. Don't you love people who do that? I, I, I need friends like that that have this way because of their experience, because of, of their life experience, I'm, I'm able to get this perspective because they've been there and done that. And those are the people that I like to spend time with. Uh, they've experienced it. They, they have a limp now. They've been broken. You know, I, I've come to a place in my life where I don't trust anyone who doesn't have a limp. You know, you got, you got to have a limp. You gotta, you've got to been... There's times you... Those are the people that you look to and you just say, wow... Those are the people that I want to hang out with. Why? Because they have this perspective. And the way they minister that perspective and share that perspective has such grace and depth to it. And those are the people that I want to hang out with. I want to hang out with the people who limp like me. And maybe they've had a limp longer than I have. And uh, what they're doing is they're just able to share that perspective. That's exactly Uh, what the Apostle Paul would do for others. And if anyone uh, literally walked with a limp, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, you don't get a a broken resume like he has. I mean, mean, he was beat up, literally beat up, shipwrecked, uh, bitten by a snake. Uh, You have all whipped, um, thrown in prison, all these kinds of things. But he comes and he brings this perspective. Paul's goal, listen... Paul's goal in this letter to Philemon, and I said this earlier, was reconciliation. And that's the big picture. And that should be the big picture in our lives as well. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't live in that air of reconciliation. In fact, reconciliation with others should be the hallmark of our faith in Jesus Christ. Because tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were still lost, he reconciled us to the Father. Friends, that is the gospel. The gospel is that we've been reconciled. 
that we had no way of getting to our Father in heaven and Jesus made a way. That's, that's reconciliation. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, and now you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling with family members. And it's an ongoing basis. They say in recovery groups, it's a living amends, that you continue to live with your heart open and you admit your faults and your sin and you reconcile with your brothers and sisters around you and that you need to operate that way in family. How many families are built on resentment and unforgiveness and bitterness and that we need to reconcile with one another and because that's the nature of Christ, that's the nature of the gospel, that we reconcile. Um, Last week, I sat down with Annette, and, you know, I, I could see things in, in my personality and, and um, just the way I'm wired that caused friction in relationship. And I was able to identify some of those areas, and I, I just sat down, and I said, here's where I know that I have not done what I really need to do in this relationship. Would you, would you forgive me? I want, I want to reconcile. I want... I want to be on this journey with you. Going to my children and saying the same thing. Where, you know, have I hurt you? Where have I created some insecurities in your life as a father? Out of my own brokenness. Where has that happened? That, that's really what reconciliation would look like. And very few of us will enter the eye of the camel. It's a difficult thing to do. Because it takes humility and it takes courage. It takes pain. But that you would look around and take inventory of your relationships and ask God's Holy Spirit, where do I need to reconcile? Can I tell you one of the areas that I think the church, the Western church, is highly dysfunctional? The Western church is highly dysfunctional in that we hold so many offenses against so many people. We are the most offended group on the planet. When our dignity is offended, we are offended, and we hold on to those resentments for quite some time. And that's why I love the story of Mark chapter 7, where the Syrophoenician woman, a Greek woman, comes to Jesus on his vacation. He's somewhere taking time away, and he says, Sir, Master, my daughter is demon-possessed. She's sick. Would you do anything? For, would you do something for her? And Jesus kind of puts her off. It's hard to even read. He kind of puts her off, but I think there's a reason there. She is unmovable. She is, she is refusing, listen to this, she is refusing to be offended. And she presses in. And when you refuse to be offended, miracles happen. And some of us may wonder, why aren't there so many more miracles happening? Can I tell you? Offense. We carry way too much offense. This woman refused to be offended, and it's a choice you make in any relationship you have. You must, you must refuse the temptation to be offended. And I want to tell you this. When you refuse the temptation to be offended, miracles will happen in your life. This woman was so tenacious. She said, I refuse to be offended. I'm going to keep pressing in. And because she did, Jesus said, wow, this faith that I see go, what you've asked for has been done. Your daughter is healed. 
We need to reconcile with each other, with family members, and refuse to be offended so that you can experience the fullness of God's Holy Spirit in your life. The Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. What he's saying there is where two or three refuse to be offended. It's another way to put it. Refuse to be offended. Want to reconcile. What does it say? The grace of heaven. The grace of Jesus Christ is poured out on you. And I don't know how many have ever really experienced that outpouring of his grace because we've held on to our offense and our stinking dignity. Our sensibilities are so fragile, folks. God is wanting to move in his people. He's wanting to move in your life. He's wanting to set you free. And would you look and see if offense is keeping you in a prison, a cell, in chains? Where the fullness of God's Holy Spirit is unable to work in your offense. Now the last thing is this. Paul... um, Paul linked others with resources. Paul was a master at this. And I want to say this. This, this, this isn't as much about monetary giving as it is about relationship. And what people are starved for, especially if you're talking about an advantage that you can uh, help others with, it's about relationship. It's about being in relationship. Listen, our greatest resource is the love of God. It's about surrendering to His love. It's about inviting His love His love will change you. His love will heal you. His love will restore you. Remember this appeal that we're talking about in the book of Philemon is about love. It's founded in the roots. The base of this is love. I want you to do something just for a moment. I I want you to imagine God thinking about you. That he's thinking about you. What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? What what do you think he feels? Because I'll tell you this, if it's anything else other than love, then you're assuming incorrectly. Because even conviction of sin comes out of the love of his heart. He's wanting you to draw closer to him and sin is in the way. Brokenness is in the way. So he presses. But he presses out of love. His love is relentless. And that he loves you. That he cares for you. Listen, God's love changed Onesimus. You know that label useless because Paul uses that kind of play on words? Because Onesimus literally means useful. So there's a play on words here that Paul is using in Philemon. Who do you think labeled Onesimus useless? He did. I think it's probably the way that Onesimus felt about himself. I mean, how wouldn't you feel that way considering the circumstances that he faced? Because I know this, God never puts a label on you that says useless. God never puts a label on you that says shamed. God never puts a label on you except a label of love. And yet for most of many of our lives, we've walked around with this this foreign label that God never put there. We put there ourselves because maybe we heard someone else say it about us and we said that must be true, but it isn't true. It's deception. It's deceit. It's a lie. As a child of God, the label placed on you is a label of love. Right. 
Onesimus comes to an understanding of this through his relationship with the Apostle Paul. And he goes on to live a healthy Christian life. Church historians tell us that he was one of the, became one of the bishops of Ephesus. From a subhuman considered to a bishop. And I don't think it's about position. I think it's about what he experienced in the love of Christ that took place in his life. 1 John 4, 15 and 16 tell us. Uh, let, go ahead and put that up there. 1 John 14, 15, or 15, 16 say, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. God doesn't have the quality or characteristic of love. God is love. We have qualities and characteristics of love. God is love. Isaiah 49 15 and 16 tell us this. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are ever before me. What he's saying is that his love is eternal, that his love for you is everlasting, that he has not forgotten you. Here's what most people believe, and maybe you believe this as well. If I change, God will love me. No. If I let God love me, I will change. It's your invitation to Him that you would say, God, I surrender to your love. I invite your love because that is what will change you. That's what will make all the difference in your life. I've heard people say, well, I can't even love myself. And I say, precisely, exactly, right on, spot on. You can't because you are not love. God is love. And it's an invitation to his love in your life that will transform you, that will change you, that will make you different. W.R. Newell says it this way, to believe and consent to be loved while unworthy or useless is the greatest secret. That's what unlocks the door. Paul loved Onesimus in his most broken state in the place that he was in. And Martin Luther, I love what he says here, therefore sinners are beautiful because they are loved. They are not loved because they are beautiful. See, the depth of love goes not to beauty. It goes to the unlovely. That is true love. And God has come to the unlovely us. He's come to the unlovely parts of us. He's not afraid of your brokenness. He's not afraid of your unloveliness. He's not afraid of your ugliness. That's why he came. And yet those are the things that we hold back. Those are the things that we don't confess. Those are the things that we don't let him into. And I can't imagine the heart of God saying, no, that's what love is. Love is getting to those places. Love isn't about ascending. Love is about descending. We think, well, if we get better, if we're just better at this or we're more beautiful, or we do, then, then, I'll, then I'll be loved. 
I'll be loved by my mother. I'll be loved by my father. I'll be loved by God. No, love is about descending. He was in heaven. He left things there. He descended to you because you had no way to get to him. You have no capacity to love him without him first loving you. None. None. This is huge in our lives. This is huge. Henry J. Nowen says this, what is important is to keep clinging to the real, the lasting, the unambiguous love of Jesus. Only when you know in your deepest being that you are intimately loved can you face the dark voices of the enemy without being seduced by them. The seduction of the Christian community has come because we have not invited the love of God into our lives. Matthew chapter 3, what happens? Matthew chapter 3 is the account of Jesus being baptized. His cousin sees him, John the Baptist, and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes up and says, I, I, I need you to baptize me. And John says, Oh, you need to baptize me. And he says, no, you need to baptize me. This is to fulfill. So John baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus comes out of the water, what is the first thing that happened? Do you remember? And the heavens opened. And what were the first words spoken by God? This is my son in whom I love. And where did Jesus go next? The temptation. It was the depth of the love he understood that was given. He understood it. He took that love. That's what kept those seducing voices at bay during times of temptation. You know what stands against temptation and the seduction of temptation is knowing that you're deeply loved. But you must invite his love. Here's the good news. (laughs) And I finish with this. The good news is God demonstrated his love while we were still sinners, useless, broken. That Christ came down. Love descended down. And he died for us. That's love. Would you invite God's love into your life? It's your invitation. Inviting him. And that changes and will change everything. Would you bow your head with me? Would you do that? Father, as we continue to worship you, may we worship you with a deeper understanding of of who you are. That you are love. Love isn't wishy-washy. Love isn't feely-touchy. Love is powerful. It's only love, true love, God's love, because God is love, that can show me the air of my ways. 
and still love me, then mercy triumphs over just ju judgment. It's only in God's love that true conviction of sin can take place and know that we have a safe place to heal. It's only in your love that all these things, even hard things, difficult things, happen. They happen in your love. Let us invite your love into our life. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say together, Amen and Amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.